This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. As you probably know, we've been, um, we're doing um, the letters, going through the letters, um, letter of the Philippians this term. Um, and um, Philippians, I think it's probably always been one of my very favorite letters um, of Paul's. So it was written by the Apostle Paul to um, a young church in Philippi. Um, and it's an amazing letter. It's one of those letters that's Um, It's got a real sense of deep love, um, of deep friendship. Um, And one of the key things which has um, run through this letter uh, is the whole issue of joy. And over the last couple of weeks, um, Richard has talked about this joy, um, which is also mentioned in this passage here. Joy is central to this letter, um, and it occurs again and again. And another thing that we see in this letter is that Paul really bears his soul to um, the people at Philippi. You get to see what is on his heart. And as we come to this amazing passage that Rachel has read for us this morning, um, you see that there's one thing that is troubling Paul. There were no major issues, no major fallouts, but the young church in Philippi was experiencing some tensions and temptations. Um, And later on, as we get to look at Philippines in more detail in another week, we'll find out that two of their leaders were quarreling. And here we see that Paul is not afraid to confront the issue lovingly and head on. And this passage tells us that what he's going to tell them next is going to make his joy 100% complete. Now, when you think about the fact that Paul is sitting in prison as he's writing this letter. I don't know about you, but I think my joy would be made 100% complete by knowing that I was going to be released, that I was going to be free from jail soon. But here is Paul, unjustly imprisoned, 
having a pretty hard time of it and facing death. And he says that his joy will be made complete by this in verse 2. By the church being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, his joy will be made 100% complete by the church being united. And when you read through the book of um, Philippians, you realize that Paul realizes that this young church is being watched. And those who are watching are not just looking at the theology of the church or their understanding of God, but they're looking at how this young church are being a family together, how they're living together, how they're treating each other, watching to see if this new Jesus, spirit-filled life, is really all that the young church says it is. So this young church may not be having major problems or issues, but there are issues that Paul needs, knows that he needs to deal with before they get out of hand. And the issue he wants to face today is all about unity. Now, unfortunately, we know that um, division in the church has got out of hand, don't we, in our history and over the centuries. We haven't really heeded Paul's warnings very well. Um, and I think we've probably done a huge amount of damage. I don't know about you, but I have many conversations over the years where people say they've been put off God because of the church, um, perhaps because of divisions in the church or fighting. And I just think that's so tragic. And if we've listened to Paul's words um, and followed them a little bit more closely, perhaps there wouldn't be quite so many people around us saying that. Um, Pope Francis has said, the greatest thorn in the side of Christ is the disunity of his church. Not only is it contrary to God's will, it is a scandal to the world. And when we look at our history, though, how is it possible for us to live in the way that Paul calls for here? We've got radical variations in the styles of worship. We like guitars. Um, Liz mentioned earlier that she's got a choir. Um, we were at a church recently where two of my family members got migraines because of the incense. Um, we're so, so different. We have formal leadership. We have informal. We have kids running around. In other churches, that wouldn't be heard of. Um, but not only that, more importantly, we've got theological differences. We've really sadly had historical events that have caused splits and tensions between East and West between and within different denominations and different churches. There have even been wars and death in the name of Christianity. We have different views on moral behavior and cultural politics. And as Nathan mentioned already, particularly perhaps for um, American Christians with President Trump and all their politics there, um, and for us in the UK with the whole issue of Brexit. So how are we meant to live as Paul asks us to be in verse 2, like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Perhaps it's an impossible dream, unless there's something beyond ourselves which gives us motivation and the ability to change. And I'm going to read the, some bits of the passage again um, in the message version, because I think it really helps to bring a bit of clarity to this passage for us. So you can keep your versions open in front of you, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 again from the message. And it says, If you got anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, 
If being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. I really like the version. And Paul gives us, in, just in verse 1, four motivations for why we should live this way. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to go through the passage verse by verse. But if you look at verse 1, we'll look at those four motivations. Firstly, we should be encouraged to be unified if we are following Christ. In some versions, it talks about being in Christ, being united with Christ. If we know what it means to experience, experience Christ's forgiveness, of allowing us to live in friendship with him, this should be our first motivation. So the fact that we're in Christ. Secondly, Paul says, if we have any comfort or consolation from the love of God in Jesus, if we experience his love, and if his love has made any difference in our lives, we can't fail to let it affect um, how we love our brothers and sisters who are equally loved by God. Christ's love should be infectious. It should infect our lives as we experience God's love and forgiveness and joy, and then we then infect the lives of the community around us. And then thirdly in that passage, it talks about our inner life of unity. It talks about being in fellowship with or sharing life with the Holy Spirit. We experience the love of Christ through the Holy Spirit living within us, directing us, strengthening us. And it's like we become spirit carriers. We take with us the unity of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if we're experiencing God's love this way, we should hardly be able to stop ourselves from loving others. And then fourthly, Paul's just slightly blunt about it. He says, basically, if you've got a heart, if you care, if you have any tenderness or compassion, he says, if you love people, you will want to be unified. So that's our four motivations. And Paul says, if you're not wanting to live in unity with other people, basically there's something pretty wrong. But unity can't be the ultimate aim, the thing we're living for. Unity is experienced in many aspects of life, not just amongst Christians. And so the unity that Paul is asking us to live for is gospel unity. And this is now the focus of the rest of the passage. So we've looked at the motivation, and now we're going to look at the model. So if in front of you, if we're going to look at verses 5 to 11. And these verses here, we don't know if these verses were Paul's or somebody else's. But they are central to this passage, and they're central also to the whole of the book of Philippians. It's a beautiful hymn or poem of early Christian faith. And it's really interesting because Paul doesn't, assent, doesn't really appeal to common sense or to human ability, but he appeals to God's character that we see most clearly in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Paul here wants to show us the model for living in unity, and he wants to show us Jesus. 
especially the way that God gave himself for us in Christ. For Paul, it's all about what God has done through Jesus. Now, I wonder what example you would use if you were trying to encourage somebody to live um, a good life or live a life that followed Christ's example. Would you use his wonderful teaching, maybe his um, amazing healings, um, his continuous care or his compassion for others? And these are often the examples that we think of when we think about um, emulating Jesus' life. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't use any of those examples here. He uses Christ's birth and Christ's death as examples, his incarnation and his crucifixion. And I want to come back onto that in a, in a little while. But this isn't just a beautiful poem or hymn. It's an incredibly clear statement of the understanding of who Jesus is. And it's really important for us to understand this if we're going to use Jesus as our model. And it asks and answers the question that many ask of whether Jesus is divine or not divine, of whether he is fully God and fully human at the same time. Now, this is a huge question, and I don't think we're going to be able to answer it in the next two minutes, um, but we'll give it a little bit of a go. And some people have thought that whole idea of making himself nothing or emptying himself means that Jesus stopped being God while he was human. But Paul is not saying that Jesus gave up being God for a while. And he explains this at the beginning and the end of the passage. If you look at verse 6, he says, Jesus is in very nature or form God. He is God the Son before he existed as human. And then in verse 11, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And these are words that were used by the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament to describe God, to express his honor, his rule, and his authority over the whole of creation. And Paul explains it in another letter like this. In Colossians, he says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So how do we understand these verses? I think the key to understanding is this, that God the Son didn't give up being divine, but gave up the privileges of being God, to be born with us, to live with us, and to die for us. God the Son chose to give up his glory for a short time and step down into the mess of a stable, the mess of our human lives, of wars and poverty. He claimed no special privileges while he was here on earth, and he even died the death of, of the lowest order of society, the slave, the outcast, the criminal, a death of unimaginable pain and utter shame, a death that was a curse in the eyes of both the Jews and the Romans living in Philippi. Jesus died as a slave so that we might go free. He died so that we might have life. And again, I think the message describes this beautifully. So I'm going to read 5 to 11 from the message. And it says, Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, 
but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long, long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. In Jesus, we see what it really means to be God. And this is the aspect of God's character that Paul wants to show. He wants to show us that God is the God of self-giving. He is the God of self-giving love. The God who was born to die for his creation. In his birth and his death, Jesus has done what only God can do. See, it had to be God on that cross. When you have a relationship with someone, and there needs healing between you, it has to be you or that other person. Someone can't come in and take your place or the place of the other person to have that relationship healed. So on the cross, it had to be God or us. And in God's love for us, he chose it not to be us. And this is why Paul has chosen these aspects of, of Christ's life, his birth and his death, rather than anything else. Because his birth and his death are the perfect self-expression of the true God who abandons his rights for the sake of the world he loves. Now, I don't know about you, but, I, but people find it, often find it quite shocking to think that this is the expression of God. They think, seem to find it quite disturbing, almost alien um, of what we expect of God. But in Christ, there's no selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's no desire for personal prestige and desire for own self and interests, which is what Paul describes in verses 3 and 4 as the root of the problem of the church in Philippi. In Jesus, we see the opposite. We see humility, putting others and their interests first. Christ made himself nothing, emptied himself, and became a servant or slave. And this is a really interesting word, that word servant. In some versions it says slave. And it's the same word that Paul uses of, his, of himself right at the very beginning of the letter in verse 1, chapter 1. Because Paul knows what this means. It was the decision that he made after Jesus had appeared to him on the road to Damascus when his life was changed because he had met the risen Lord. And from then on, his life was spent in service of others, even ending up in a prison cell. Verse 5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or in other versions, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. 
we are also to become slaves or servants like Christ. As, as God gave himself to the world through Jesus' birth and death, that's the example that Paul uses for us as the church to follow, to give us up ourselves completely, to give up our selfish ambitions, our self-importance, our self-centeredness, and to give ourselves to humble service and unselfish love. We've also got to be prepared to give up ourselves. But how does this tie in with a question that we're asking through this series, which is all about our identity and who we are in Christ? So this is our third and final point. We've seen the motivations that uh, Paul gives us. We've seen a model to follow. And now we come to the meaning of who we are in Christ Jesus. And Paul points them to Jesus. He wants them to show that this is who Jesus is, and therefore this is who we are. We are so loved. Christ was born for you and he died for you. We belong. We're part of the family of Christ. Our identity is to live in Christ and to love him back. And the expression of this is to live as Christ lived, sacrificially, loving God, loving each other, and working towards the unity of Christ's church because people are watching and we need to shine as like a beacon in the world around us. And not only does Paul use um, unity in a number, of, uh, letter, a number of his letters, but it was also something that Jesus was really passionate about. Jesus prayed that they may be one as we are one in John 17. But the thing that we want to note at the end here is that it's not about being the same. This is unity in diversity. It's the picture of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are diverse and yet unified. They're different, and yet they're one. Paul is not saying that we're all meant to be the same, not necessarily agreeing about every aspect or every issue. That would be completely unrealistic. But we have the immense privilege of reflecting God in his diversity and also the beautiful difference in humanity which he's created. We are hugely diverse, but we're meant to be unified. So what should our unity look like? Our attitude to each other should be the same as Christ's attitude towards us. Abandoning our rights for the sake of the church and the sake of the world. Christ should be our incentive but it's the Holy Spirit who works in us and enables us to live like this. And even if we can't always agree on how to get there, we should have the same mind, the same love, and the same purpose or goal, which is to bring Christ's kingdom into the world. It's an attitude of love in the big things and the little things. It's the direction of our whole lives, but also our everyday actions. It's often seen by what's central to our conversations our concerns, our thoughts, our giving, our prayers, our work, and our family life. And two final quick thoughts. This way of living is not usually seen as the way of greatness in the eyes of the world or even in the eyes of the church at times. But it is the way of living in the eyes of God. And Hebrews 12, verse 2, sums it up beautifully. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus rather than ourselves or other people. And finally, if you struggle with the concept of God, especially perhaps some of those difficult Old Testament passages, start from Jesus and rethink your whole picture of God. Jesus most clearly shows us who God is, the God who loves us and pursues us, the God who dies for us, who isn't prepared to stand back and let us self-destruct. He is the God who has an answer, who is the answer, who says, look at me, dying, bleeding for you, prepared to abandon my rights because I love you. We're going to have probably about a minute of quiet before the children come back in. And we're going to reflect on this passage. The fact that despite our differences as Christians, as his church, we can still pray together. We can serve together and work together for God's kingdom. So we might want to take a few moments just to um, think about our relationship with other Christians to pray for unity and not division. To pray for a love. Or you may want to pray for a new view of who Jesus is, who emptied himself for you, for the person sitting next to you, for your neighbor. And pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and fill you afresh, to empower you to live like Christ.